You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Cases of COVID-19 in Ireland are rising steadily, but the rate of increase appears to be slower here than it is in other countries. Cases of the virus peaked in Ireland on the 23rd of April at 936, but while recent days have seen new cases in excess of 400, we're still a long way off that peak back in the spring. The same, however, cannot be said for other countries like the UK, France and Spain, which have seen daily increases of the virus surpass the numbers being experienced earlier this year. Well, we're joined on the line now by Professor James McInerney, who's head of the School of Life Sciences at the University of Nottingham. Uh, Professor McInerney, good morning and thank you for joining us. Morning. Um, There is a lot of doom and gloom, I suppose, in this country when we see rising case numbers here. But how is Ireland performing internationally in comparison to other countries? So I think maybe the first thing to say is that it's never very good to see cases on the rise because this is a, a virus that we know can take you by surprise very, very quickly. Um, I'm, I'm probably best place to maybe talk about uh, what's happened here in the UK. And um, here you've got a sort of almost perfect storm of three things that are coming together at the same time. Um, you've got uh, government directions that I think, if I was being really charitable, I would say that they were quite chaotic. Um, right now we have the rule of six, which is to say that you can meet any other five people anywhere, but no more than that. And uh, and you have pubs and, and restaurants closing at 10 o'clock, and those are the restrictions. But all over the UK right now, uh, particularly in Wales and in the northeast of England, uh, you've got uh, huge restrictions on people, and uh, it looks like it's uh, it might be that, that they've lost control of the situation. The, the main reason, and it's the second thing that's happened here, is the fall over of what we call Pillar 2 testing, which is the broad community testing uh, facilities. And we've got these giant lighthouse labs uh, that are capable of doing you know, something like 100,000 tests a day if they were getting the samples. And, and we have scientists there that are sitting on their hands waiting for samples to come in. But the person on the street who's trying to get, to, to get a test and goes online simply can't get a test. I mean, you know, well, sorry some of them cannot get a test and it's very it seems to be just not working this whole pillar two testing thing and then the third thing that's happened here in the uk is of course that it's happening elsewhere is the reopening of the universities and schools and we've seen you know on the first day of universities reopening we've, we've seen outbreaks all over the country so um so what you're seeing in terms of the numbers in the uk um are probably the confluence of all of those three things and and, and that's a problem and it's it's not just the uk but i know as you say your best place to talk about that but what is it then that Ireland is doing that other countries are, are not doing? Um, I, th- I think that th- there might be a, a few things. Um, it, it seems that from the start, first of all, Ireland got, got going pretty early and uh, and there seems to be very, very good compliance with with you know, the, the general rules that are coming out from government in Ireland. And I think that's that's probably a very interesting uh, thing to, to, to talk about. The other thing is the testing in Ireland, although I, I believe it's not absolutely perfect, but, but I think it's quite good. And and that's so important to just track and to keep things under control. So I think it's it's just that little bit better than, than, than elsewhere. And once you see, if you're on top of things, then uh, then you can maybe uh, retain some measure of control over over this virus. And uh, so it seems to be things like that, just the proactive nature of it and maybe the, the relatively better uh, messages that are coming out from government. As I mentioned in the introduction there, uh, we've seen daily cases of the virus in other countries surpass where they were yes. back in the spring. That hasn't happened here yet. I mean, do you think that that will happen as we head into the winter? 
Okay, so there's two things about this. So first of all, in March, no country really had very good testing. Well, you know, outside of South Korea and places like this, but most countries didn't have good testing. So whatever numbers you had in March were probably a, a huge underestimate. Now today there's mass testing, but it's still probably an underestimate. But but comparing March to today is probably a bit, you know, it's difficult. It's fraught with difficulties. Today we have a much better idea. So if the numbers are higher than March, you know, the visible numbers are higher than March. That still might not mean that you're higher than March yet. But certainly the, the trajectory is the thing that you, you need to look at, and, and that's go, going in in the wrong direction. Uh, will everybody go higher than March? You know, the reality is this. This virus hasn't changed in any sort of meaningful way. There are mutations, but, but it hasn't really changed uh, what it does and so on. The numbers that you see are a measure of people. It's an indicator of what people are doing. So... Uh, there is no need for a, a second wave. Uh, the reason for it is because people are different to, to what they were doing in June, July, August and September. And this virus has no memory. It doesn't care how good you were in June, July and August. It, it really doesn't. Uh, but the virus hasn't really changed. It's people that have changed. And we have heard some people say that Ireland has been too restrictive in not opening pubs that only serve uh, drink in, in the capital, um, keeping university students at home and so on instead of going on, onto the campus. So, I mean, what do you say to people who would criticise those measures as being over the top in this country and, and out of line with the rest of Europe? Um, I think this, first of all, that's you know I'm a scientist, and so my opinion on this should should be uh, because the question you've asked is a political question. My opinion should be no more than than any other individual, so it's not a scientific question. Um, I guess my 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 thoughts on this have always been that the that the health imperative and the economic imperative were pretty much aligned. That if this virus really takes hold, then then all economics stops. So uh, for me, you know, trying to keep as much control as you can over the virus is the best thing in in the medium term economically as well as the best thing health-wise. So um, I, I think the question you've asked is a political question, but for me, I think the two are actually aligned. All right. Can I ask you but just briefly then and finally about the future? I mean, we had yeah. the head of the HSE, Paul Reid, talking yesterday about people having to live with this virus for a very long time, even if there is a vaccine developed and found. What's your, as a, as a scientist, what's your perspective on that? How long might we have to live with the virus and, and why would we have to live with the virus even if we have a vaccine okay so 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 this is this is the big question that everybody's asking so first of all the the largest clinical trial in the history of the world has just started johnson and johnson have got a vaccine it's gone through phase two clinical trials with 800 participants it's come through um you know very very little in terms of side effects just minor irritation it seems to build up good antibodies and they're going to have a, a, a clinical trial of sixty thousand people it's a single shot vaccine and it doesn't need to be refrigerated or frozen if if this if this comes through it'll be really really interesting really 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 good and and but and you have people like tony fauci saying in in america that that we could be rolling out a vaccine in uh, november or december of this year but the point is that this isn't over until it's over everywhere so we've seen this you've seen the the virus spread from one country to another very very easily and so it won't be over until sufficient numbers of people have been vaccinated to uh, to stop the transmission chains to to reduce the the vaccine and that will take time all right professor james McInerney, head of the school of life sciences at the university of nottingham thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us in morning ireland <laughs> 
Well, this time three months, it'll all be over. But right now, it's 87 days until Christmas. It's a season synonymous with large gatherings and travel. So how will all this work in the midst of a pandemic? Retail is just one of the sectors that's feeling a mixture of hope and foreboding about the festive period. In the first of two reports, Ailey Sheehy looks ahead to Christmas 2020. Christmas as we know it will be different this year. The current pandemic has brought about many changes to our daily lives, but despite the many restrictions and growing uncertainty, those whose livelihoods depend on the festive period are looking to Christmas to generate more business and to boost morale. The annual Christmas shop has opened in Brown Thomas stores across Ireland and according to Mark Limby, stores director for Brown Thomas and Arnott's, Christmas is certainly not cancelled. However, it remains to be seen what the most wonderful time of the year will look like this year. I think people are really looking forward to Christmas after a difficult year. We've got some amazing windows, as you know, in both stores, in Henry Street and also in Grafton Street, and they're due to open on the 22nd of October. Um, so it's really safe to say that, you know, we have a lot going on in the stores. So Christmas is definitely not cancelled at all. The three-month run into Christmas and the new year, also known as the Golden Quarter, is seen as the most lucrative time of year for the majority of retailers. Festive outfits and party attire are a popular purchase for those attending parties and social events over the Christmas period. However, Duncan Graham, Managing Director of Retail Excellence, says there will be a shift in trend this year. When we were in the middle of lockdown was when a lot of buyers were thinking around autumn winter products and so on. And traditionally they would have been thinking about placing orders for occasion wear and party wear and more formal items. Well of course that's not really happening now. You know we're not going to be going to the parties like we've done in previous years. So we're going to see a downturn in that sort of thing and we're probably going to see a big upswing in things like active wear and and outdoor wear, those types of products. And lounge wear, you know those cosy items. And then of course I think it's going to be a really big gifting Christmas. Retail Excellence is also advising consumers to shop ahead of time this year, not only to avoid the rush, but to avoid disappointment. I would encourage people to shop early. If you want to get that Christmas present that you really want, then get in there and get it while stocks last in some cases. But also, you know, do we really want to be in a place where the final two weeks of December, we've got loads of people shopping in our town centres? Great from a retail perspective, not so easy when you're talking about customer care. On Grafton Street, these people have mixed views when it comes to early Christmas shopping. I mostly buy vouchers. I'd be afraid, actually, to buy vouchers. You don't know where those uh, particular companies are going to be at Christmas and after Christmas. I'd keep a watch out for presents. I normally start my Christmas shopping around the start of December. I would come earlier than that or go somewhere else where there wouldn't be so many people. I think I have a few silly things, stocking presents for the grandchildren. No, we haven't started our Christmas shopping. It's not even in sight at the moment. Nothing like walking around the shops. So hopefully we'll still have the option. There's great sales on. And if you want to save money, now is the time. But I haven't got it into my head for Christmas yet. And I love Christmas. (laughs)
The RDS is home to the annual craft and design fair Gifted, which takes place on the first weekend in December every year. The popular exhibition kicks off the Christmas gifting season and attracts around 40,000 visitors over the five-day period. This year, however, organisers have been left with no other option but to cancel the event at the Ballsbridge venue. But the show will still go ahead online, as organiser Patrick O'Sullivan explains. We have 500 exhibitors. The vast, vast majority of those would come from rural Ireland. They would not have a shop front like this for the Christmas market. And we estimate that they would take up to maybe three to four months of their annual turnover would come out of this one week of trading in the RDS. So the online experience will try and reflect the broad breadth of products that is available. We'll have hundreds of Ireland's best craft workers with thousands of their products on our platform, giftedfromireland.com, available to be delivered directly to your door in a safe and friendly environment. So the experience that you get at the show won't quite be the same, but we'll get as close as we possibly can. So Christmas isn't cancelled. That was Patrick O'Sullivan, one of the organisers of the Gifted Craft and Design Fair at the RDS, ending that report by Ailey Sheehy. And we'll have the second part of that report tomorrow. The Dublin Theatre Festival should now be in full swing, but many of its shows had to be changed or adapted during the summer due to COVID-19 restrictions. Then they changed again when Dublin moved to Level 3. However, as our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley now reports, the show goes on, both online and in limited circumstances, in front of a live audience too. And so I'm back there. 19-year-old, thinking like every other gangly muppet that I've got something to prove. On a traffic island in the middle of O'Connell Street in Dublin, a young man tells us about his memories of violence on that street in 2006. O'Connell Street was already in a jock. The thrill of the barrier bending and the missiles flying. Pulled into the mill. Robbie O'Connor is one of the performers in A Party to End All Parties, an Anu production for the Dublin Theatre Festival. The show was originally going to bring audience members to meet the performers, but as Louise Lowe of Anu explains, that had to change when Dublin was moved to level three, and it will now be streamed online. We've never tried to do anything like that before, and it's a really interesting and brilliant opportunity for this, for, you know, for presenting the show that can't happen, but actually getting a chance to do it. We've tried to keep the communion that we can have with audiences, feeling as intimate and as personal for the viewer, wherever they might be, as if they were standing on the bridge beside that person. It's just one of many changes and adaptations made to the festival since March. Willie White is artistic director. The word for this year is scenarios. We've had to imagine what might happen, and when that didn't happen, imagine something else. But we've actually proven to be quite able to be agile and to respond to the changing circumstances, even though what we'd offered is nothing like what we imagined at the beginning. I felt it was really, really important, even if it wasn't what we had planned, that we actually maintain a presence and a visibility for the festival, and also give an artist an opportunity to make work, to have people work with them and for that work to be seen by an audience. The idea um, that a year would go past where there was just a gap, where the festival ought to have happened, was just not appealing to me at all. One show that is going ahead in front of a live, although limited, audience is the Abbey Theatre's production of The Great Hunger. It follows um, a, a peasant farmer, Patrick Maguire, and tracks him through his life. But it's also an investigation of an entire rural way of life. Katrina McLaughlin and Connell Morrison are co-directing the show outside at the Irish Museum of Modern Art. 
Um, it has its challenges, you know, as we move from the rehearsal room up here to Emma, the actors have had to just expand and find a richness of voice and work out like, how exactly they're going to communicate with the audiences. But um, they're, they're relishing the challenges and uh, they're ready to go. It's a lot smaller than we'd hoped a couple of months ago when we started this project. But to be honest, the size of the audience doesn't matter. It's just fantastic to get in front of a live audience and to be able to make live work again. We were doing the fit up for this, installing the lights and so on. And some of the crew members bumped into a, a woman who was watching them work. And she said how actually moved she was to see people hanging lights, going around in high-vis vests with walkie-talkies. Just the sense of some event happening, some art being made. Uh, she realised how much she missed it and how much she was looking forward to uh, being able to engage with, with, with some live performance again. It's a young man taking up a lot of space, big, wild, gesturing. Two staff members at a distance holding all this worthy. Back on O'Connell Street, Niamh McCann is telling the story of a young man accessing homeless services. It's not like I'm not used to being in resident rooms or that I'm not... I'm not thrown into sticky situations, but there's a, an energy in him. Not dangerous, but like, he's vibrating from the inside out. He's angry and he's upset and he doesn't know what to do with it. And usually that would be directed at me. And I would know what to do with it, but this isn't usual. And indeed, this year's Dublin Theatre Festival is far from usual, but the festival itself goes on. That report by our arts and media correspondent Sinead Crowley. Around a thousand extra college places could be needed because of two computer coding errors in this year's calculated Leaving Cert grades. The bombshell announcement for the class of 2020 came from Education Minister Norma Foley yesterday evening. At this stage, the exact details are not known, as I heard a few minutes ago from Minister Foley. Well, we don't actually know the exact figures at, at this stage, um, Anya. What we do know from our um, initial analysis is that we're talking about approximately um, 6,500 students um, who received one grade lower than they should have. Um, that has currently been rectified. But just to put it in context also, that um, when the errors were identified um, by Polymetrica and indeed um, the uh, Calculated Grades Office, um, I then requested that there would be international expert oversight on the process. And we currently have in place that uh, external oversight. And so the process has been worked through and we will have all of the figures and all of the data available in the next number of days. But in terms of the number of places that you referenced there, I think it is important to remember, for example, just even in the context of appeals last year, there were 17,000 appeals, there were 3,000 upgrades and 600 higher preference offers were were then made. And of those 600 higher preference offers, um, all of those offers were made within... um, the, that, that academic year, bar three. So I would be very hopeful that we would achieve a, a similar level of success mm. uh, next year. But in terms of the figure about a thousand extra paces for the class of 2020, uh, following these coding errors, uh, Professor Anne Looney saying earlier that sounds right. It's being reported that that's what the Minister for Higher Education was saying, and that would cost around uh, 10 million euro extra. The question is, with the colleges, third level colleges already, 2,000 up on last year, 
where would those extra thousand students be fitted in? Well, I, I think, that, and again, I will say that that's just a, um, an estimate or a guesstimate at, at, at this stage. But what I will say, there is an absolute commitment, um, and I want to acknowledge that from Minister Harris and indeed from my own department, that we will work hand in hand to do all that we possibly can to ensure that... Um, all students um, uh, who are to get a, a, an upgraded offer will receive that offer and the maximum number of them to be able to follow that up in this academic year. All that you possibly can isn't going to build laboratories where there's a limit on the, on the number of laboratories and so on and you know isn't going to be able to squeeze extra people into, onto a medical course where there, there's a natural limit on the, on the number of people who can do that course successfully. So there will be people who'll have to wait, won't there? There, there may well be a number of students who have to defer, but I have to say it is very early to make that call now. I think we have to acknowledge that um, huge efforts were already made this year in terms of making extra places um, available. Equally, we have to acknowledge that there is an absolute intention from all concerned um, my own department to work hand-in-hand with the Department of Higher Education to ensure a maximum number of places will be available. And I have confidence that, that we will achieve that to the absolute limit. Why didn't you tell the Doyle sooner? Why didn't you brief the opposition party sooner? Why didn't you tell the Cabinet on Tuesday? Why have you effectively kept this secret since last Wednesday? Well, I think it is important to note that um, when the Secretary-General of the Department informed me that an error had been identified um, in in the uh, system, that at that point on Wednesday, that is all that I knew that there was an error, how many students it impacted, what impact it would have overall, was not available to us. We absolutely did not know. And I felt it was important that we would know exactly what was involved. Um, it, it was important for clarity and that we would know exactly what we were talking about. So, um, But as these aren't aware, 12-year-olds, Minister. These are grown students. These are going young adults about going to college, choices that would affect the rest of their lives. Did you not think it would have been fair, or even if you couldn't tell them directly, to call in, Aon O'Reardon is saying, you and your department are not working with the opposition education spokespersons, you're not briefing them, you're not filling them in, and he's saying they actually want to work with you to solve these problems, but your department's being too closed, too secretive. Was that a mistake this past week? No, well, I think in the first instance, I would like to say you're absolutely quite correct. The most important people um, in, in, in this um, uh, scenario at the moment are actually our students. And they are our principal and they are certainly my principal concern. And as I say to you, the only information available was that there was an error, nothing further. And I think in the best interest of the students, it was hugely important that there would be clarity uh, around what that error meant who the students would be, who it would impact, what it would mean overall. And we immediately began that process. And indeed, I'd also have to say, in the interest of the students and surety for the students, I requested my department to ensure that we would have uh, expert international oversight on the issue. And so the company ETS uh, from the United States, one of the largest providers of expertise in the areas of um, uh, statistics and educational testing have also been employed to give oversight to this process and when the um, 
the, the, the checks are completed, all of the information will be made available. In all right, but Minister, to, why no, did you not, why could, did you not tell answer, your Cabinet yes, colleagues last Tuesday, did you not trust them not to leak the information? You're in a coalition. Just to clarify, um, I was made uh, aware of it um, on Wednesday afternoon. The Office of Antishik was also made aware of it. The Secretary General of my department informed the Second, uh, Secretary General um, of Antishik's department. Um, I also spoke with the Antishik. Um, I spoke also uh, later in the week as the information was becoming available and it was becoming clearer what we what what we know now. Um, when I had information, I did also discuss it with um, the Minister for Higher Education. Michael uh, McGrath, your own party colleague, your own cabinet colleague, didn't know about this till he heard the media reports yesterday. It took Alan Kelly to stand up in the doyle. Is this a way to be doing business? I, I think it's very important, and I've said at the outset, that the fullest of information should be made available and that it should most especially be made available to the students. It is only when I had the fullest of information that I, I was in a position to deliver that. And again, I'd have to say, we have certain information at this point. There is more information to come. And I, I think the department and uh, myself as minister, we did all that we could to ensure that we would get that information. And as we had it initially, the Department of the Taoiseach was informed. The leaders were also informed. And as I said, I discussed it with the Minister for Higher Education. And as further information became available and I was in a position to put it into the public domain, that was done. But not with the rest of the Cabinet. When will the right offers for uh, 2020 be issued by the CAO? Well, as I have said, we have international oversight um, on the, the process as it stands. We also have the uh, contractor polymetrica. And I think it's important to point out also that the, the error was identified internally. But we are, we've now employed international oversight. And then a second error was on, found. On so when will the right offers yes. be, be issued, Minister? As the information, as the uh, analysis is completed in the next number of days, a full file will be made available to the CEO, and the CEO will then um, uh, obviously um, make contact with the higher education institutes, uh, who then instruct CEO to make offers to successful candidates. So that will be done as speedily as possible. And who will pay for this mess, either politically or administratively or financially? Well, there is, um, you know, to be fair, I think we have to acknowledge an error has occurred. Um, that error is being rectified. All that needs to be done is being done. Um, I think the fact that, you know, you would regard it as a mess, absolutely. It is un- you know, I would regard it as unacceptable that it happened, but it would be a true mess if no action and no positive and proactive action were being taken. And I think... It's important to acknowledge that that action is being taken. It is important to acknowledge that um, we're doing all that we can to write what has occurred for our students. And I do want to take the, the opportunity to apologize to the, uh, the class of uh, 2020, who I know have gone through so much in this past number of months. And I, I, I want to acknowledge that. I want to acknowledge that they did not need this ad- additional stress and anxiety, if you like. But I want to assure them that all that needs to be done is being done, and it has been done as speedily as possible. Will you be making a statement and answering questions in the Dáil today, Minister? Yes, indeed. I'm happy to do that. And I've always been happy to do that. Uh, 
when the information is available, I am happy to do that. And as the information becomes uh, more available, I will continue to do that. I have no issue whatsoever with um, making myself available for the all hearing. And that was Education Minister Norma Foley speaking to us a little earlier. Chaotic, bad-tempered and exhausting. 35 days until the US presidential election, current President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden took part in the first of three televised debates in Cleveland, Ohio this morning. It focused on six topics in 15-minute segments. The candidate's record, the Supreme Court, the pandemic, race, election integrity and the economy. And it wasn't pretty. Joe Biden called Donald Trump a liar and a clown. Donald Trump called on white supremacists to stand back and stand by. There was name-calling, countless interruptions, and at times resembled little more than an angry row between two old men. Yeah, you can be the greatest, you can be the best, you can be the king Kong banging on your chest. You were a senator. And You're the, the worst way, you president vice... America has ever had. Hey, hey, Come Joe, on. Let me, let me just tell you, Joe. I've done more in, in 47 months. I've done more than you've done in 47 years, Joe. I'm not going to answer the question. Why because, would you answer that because question? Because the question is. The question is. The question left. Will you who shut is up, on, man. Listen, who is on your list, Joe? List. We have ended this segment. We're going to move on to the second segment. That was really a pr- productive segment, wasn't it? What do you want to call them? Give me a name. Give me a white name. White supremacists and right like me to condemn? White Proud supremacists and right Proud Proud boys, stand back and stand by. But I'll tell you what. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left. No, I, I, the answer to the question is no. Ukraine. No, I, sir. With a billion dollars, if you get rid of the That is you know what, you're, wait, not stop. true. You're going to have tape. true. Gentlemen. Is, <laughs> I hate to raise my voice, but I see it seems to be. Why shouldn't I be different than the two of you? There was a story in one of the papers. I paid paid $38 million one year. I paid $27 million one year. Show us your tax returns. I went. uh, You'll see it as soon as it's finished. You'll see it. The fact is that everything he's saying so far is simply a lie. I'm not here to call out his lies. Everybody knows he's a liar. But you I just agree. want to make sure. Joe, you're the liar. I, 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 I want to make sure. You graduated last in your class, I, not I, first in your I, class. I, <laughs> I want to make Mr. sure. Mr. President, can you let him finish, sir? No, he doesn't know how to do that. You can run the mile. You can walk straight through hell with a smile. My son did nothing wrong at Burisma. I think he did. Mr. President, let him answer. Well, it's hard to get any word in with this clown. President Trump, Vice President Biden, it's been an interesting hour and a half. I want to thank you both for participating. And that selection of sounds from last night's row to the backdrop of the script put together by Angus Cox. For more, let's talk now to Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUI Galway and former legal counsel of Democrats abroad, and to James Connor of Republicans Overseas Ireland. Thank you both very much for joining us on the programme this morning. James, I'll come to you first. What do you make of it? Well, it was it was definitely entertaining. <laughs> uh, I... I, I got up about 1.30 in the morning to uh, get everything set up to watch the debate, and I watched it, and then since then I've been uh, following the social media traffic. I think there was a, they, they had the six-question format, which, you know, everybody knew about, um, 
But once the, the candidates got into their free flow, there, there was a, a lot of missed opportunities to follow up on some very important issues. Um, I think the president did a good job uh, getting his points out. The vice president, while he, he seemed somewhat composed, he I don't feel he really presented anything that would project a, a way forward for the country. And as far as the moderator, I know Chris Wallace has taken a lot of heat today because of how the debate was run. But, uh, you know, emotions were running high up there. There was only so much he could do. Yeah, tough job. There were low expectations, Larry Donnelly, of Joe Biden. Did he meet them or exceed them? I think he probably met them at the end of the day. Uh, Joe Biden wasn't great. I mean, he certainly, there were moments of weakness. There were moments where he was meandering. But I think at points, he, he was solid. I think he was solid uh, when it came to urging Americans to get out to vote. I think he was solid when he talked about, uh, we can be better than this, we can do better than this. But the bottom line here, Gavin, is that it was really a sad night for America, in my view. Uh, if you think back to presidential debates, at least during my lifetime, uh, there was an element of decorum. There was an element of respect uh, on both sides that I think always shone through. Uh, last night, what we saw was uh, personal attacks that I thought were nasty, biting back and forth, and didn't really contribute very much to people's understanding of the issues, or indeed did it move the needle very much. If anything, uh, I think Donald Trump, because he he was so aggressive uh, and kept repeat, kept uh, talking over people and kept trying to insert himself. He may have alienated some of that small group of persuadable voters uh, that both candidates are fighting over. James, when asked to condemn white supremacists, Donald Trump called them proud boys and called on them to stand back and stand by. Why do you think he did that? Uh, the, the way that I heard it was uh, stand back. Is, I think stand back is... is I take that to mean it's the same as stand down, like stop what you're doing. Uh, stand by is a simple term, like stand by, like uh, don't go anywhere. Because, I mean, like when I was in the military, it was stand by meant don't go anywhere because we got something for you to do. Or be in ready. In the sense that if you guys don't stop acting up, we're going to, you know, deal with you accordingly. And then the president followed it up with, uh, I think he said to condemn Antifa as well because he is always getting lumped in with this uh, extreme right white supremacist thing, but there's never any talk about the extreme left with Antifa and the BLM movement and whatever anarchy groups are on that side. Yes, but by failing, uh, to, failing to, sorry, but by failing to condemn right-wing activists in the same way that he condemned left-wing activists, he wouldn't have convinced many middle ground voters, would he? I, I don't think so because I. I if I remember correctly, he was on a roll about something, and then Chris had asked him, do you condemn it? And he, I think he said two or three times, yeah, yes, I'll condemn whoever you want. Who do you want? And then he put it out there. And then I think it, and then they, he threw it back to uh, Vice President Biden to go ahead and condemn the, the opposing group. So it, it really wasn't equal in that sense. But I, I feel that he did condemn them. He said, you want me to condemn them? Yes, there it is. Larry Donnelly, there were a lot of exchanges on coronavirus, understandably, including Donald Trump claiming a virus could be available within weeks, which is something we were talking to James McInerney about earlier in the programme, and he also said the army is all set up to deliver it. 
Yes, I mean, certainly that that's something that Trump will be pointing to. Whether he's over-egging it or not, uh, I don't know. I don't think anybody can speak with 100% accuracy as to what's down the line uh, with respect to coronavirus. Uh, but, but just to return to what we were talking about a minute ago, uh, I cannot fathom why Donald Trump did not unreservedly condemn uh, white nationalists and white supremacists. It makes no sense politically because had he done so, he then could have said, I condemn them unreservedly. And Mr. Vice President, can I ask you to condemn Antifa unreservedly? Something that Joe Biden is obviously uncomfortable with doing for a variety of reasons. Had he done so, he could have put Biden on the back foot, but he didn't. Uh, And I think some people are going to draw their own conclusions as to why he refuses to condemn uh, some of those horrible people involved in the white supremacist movement, but it was just a very, very poor political tack. And I think it comes down to his thing of not giving in an inch, not backing down. Uh, And I think it's very, very foolish electoral strategy. James Conner, his failure also to answer the question on how much federal income tax he paid in 2016 and 2017, will those failures, will they make any difference to his support? I don't think so. I, I don't think they'll make any difference to the supporters. Um, if people are still undecided at this point, I, I don't really know how to convince them otherwise. But I, most of the the middle ground people aren't going to care about that. I mean, the fact. I mean, when that news article came out, there was nothing in there that was uh, illegal. The, the man's done nothing illegal. People are just upset because he won't release his taxes, which he doesn't have to do. Um, and and so they keep going after him on this case, which is really irrelevant but i mean he paid his taxes they try to paint it as if he didn't pay his taxes but he did in fact pay his taxes he used the tax system to pay what was owed um but i don't think that's going to sway any at this point in the game i don't think that's going to make a difference to anybody it was just sort of something that came out in the last week so it's in the news larry donnelly it was a very odd backdrop there was no applause it was a smaller audience many though not everyone in the audience was wearing masks there was no spin room after the debate and we've another two debates like this to go for undecided or middle ground voters or indeed voters who haven't decided if they're going to vote at all yet will another two slugfests like this between two men in their 70s convince more people to vote I, yeah, I don't. I don't think it's. I don't. Based on what I saw last night, uh, I can't see it moving the needle very much either way. And your point about the audience is actually a really good one because uh, traditionally, when we talk about the one-liners and the zingers and the things that stick out from uh, a presidential debate, uh, we often say that because they're ampl- amplified by the crowd reaction at the debate. Uh, in the absence of that, uh, you know, it's very hard to make the case that one line was stronger than the other. We're only left to our perceptions as people sitting there watching. But I think there's serious questions, given the way last night's debate unfolded, uh, I think there's serious questions over whether indeed uh, the other two debates will unfold. Uh, I also think that a lot of Americans might tune out if they get the sense that uh, it's just going to be another debate like that. Uh, It may have some entertainment value, but I just don't think uh, people really are turned on to that. Uh, And and I think, again, for me watching from afar, uh, it's quite dispiriting to see where American presidential politics uh, has sunk to. There are lots of reasons 
reasons for it, uh, but it's still quite dispiriting in that sense. And the last point uh, about the final two debates is their impact is going to be significantly less because, as everyone knows, voting is going on rapidly now. Millions of people will have already cast their votes by the time uh, the next presidential debate is ha- happens. So Donald Trump's window is getting smaller every day, okay. uh, and I don't believe he did what he needed to do or had the night he needed to have last night. Larry Donnelly, law lecturer in NUI Galway. James Connor of Republicans Overseas Ireland. Thank you both very much for speaking to us this this morning. Well, it's less than nine months since most of us first heard of the coronavirus. In that time, more than a million people have died, over 200,000 of them in the United States. Here, there's been a significant resurgence in cases. Four people died in August. In September, there were at least 24 deaths. Mind you, this remains a long way from the situation back in April when the daily death toll was often over 40. Dr David Nabarro is the World Health Organization's special envoy for COVID-19. I asked him why there had been a resurgence of infections across many parts of Europe. We've reduced the amount of virus massively and that's been fabulous but it's still around and what happens when people start to move and to connect is that the virus jumps from person to person and transmission increases and it's been doing that and it's picking up again throughout Europe Uh, and the real test now for all of us is can we create enough difficulties for the virus so that it doesn't build up and cause big outbreaks all over again. But up until now, there haven't been the same number of deaths as in the spring. Why? People who are most at risk of dying as a result of this virus are really being extremely careful. And those who care for them are also taking many more precautions But if we look at other parts of the world, we do see the numbers of people going to hospital is building up again. And I am very concerned that in a matter of time, uh, perhaps slower than happened in April and May, we're going to see uh, levels of disease and death start to increase again. There is also evidence, though, that growing numbers of people are sceptical about the impact of the virus. They'd argue that the restrictions are causing so many other problems from depression to other illnesses not being treated to unemployment that countries need to rethink what they're doing. I personally am not advocating a return to countrywide lockdowns. I'm also encouraging people everywhere to be working out for themselves how they can go about their lives, get their children educated, keep working and so on, despite the fact that the virus is in our midst. Another argument heard with more regularity is that there should be special measures to protect the elderly or the vulnerable and that younger, fitter people should basically be allowed to get on with their lives. Well, I certainly think that people should get on with their lives, but I would also advocate that we do not simply take this virus lightly and say, well, it doesn't matter to me if I get ill, it'll only be a mild illness, because I'm finding, and I think others are seeing this as well, that as many as one in 20 people who get this virus have a lingering and rather unpleasant illness with a slow recovery. 
Nobody wants that. Be very, very careful with that logic. It, it actually could lead to a lot of suffering and still a lot of death. How far away is a vaccine? We still don't have a vaccine against this virus, though we have some attractive candidates and they're going through testing. If we can just wait a couple more months until some of the results of the phase three testing come through and tell us, first of all, that the, the vaccines are truly effective in stopping the virus from catching people, and secondly, that they're safe and they don't cause side effects, then we'll be able to say we've got a vaccine just around the corner. Are you concerned that even if there is a vaccine, say by the middle of next year, that, yeah. that a considerable number of people will be reluctant to take it because they're worried about side effects? I mean, I'm concerned about several things that I'm hearing uh, about people's anxieties. Firstly, people really don't believe that the virus exists in some cases. Secondly, they think it's a much perhaps milder disease than I think it is. And thirdly, they actually accuse some people of deliberately creating a hoax to scare the public. That kind of anxiety and then the anxiety about a vaccine perhaps being dangerous is understandable because this is a very uh, uh, unusual and un unpleasant situation and there's a lot to be frightened of. If you're undecided, just look at the website and other material from the World Health Organization or get in touch with people like myself and talk it through with us. We've got no, no uh, peculiar agendas. We just want everybody to be as healthy and safe as possible. And that was Dr. David Nabarro of the World Health Organization. And today is National Potato Day, the annual celebration of one of Ireland's favourite foods, the humble spud. Some producers are looking to expand the market further by chipping away at the growing demand for potato starch, as Angus Cox has been finding out. Where we put the wonky potatoes in? Right. Kleena Costello is R&D manager with the Mead Potato Company in Lobenstown. Over the last 18 months or so, she has overseen the development of a purpose-built plant on the County Meath site, focusing purely on the production of potato starch. The potato starch, um, as you can see in front of you here, it looks like flour. It's essentially white flour um, to, to the human eye. So it's used as a thickener in soups and sauces. It's used as a binding agent in the meat and cheese industry. It's also used as a gluten-free alternative in pet feeds. It's a growing trend in vegan and vegetarian foods and it's also a bioplastic so it can be used as an alternative to plastic packaging. It takes about six to eight tonnes of raw potatoes to get one tonne of starch and it takes that potato approximately one hour, 22 stages to get to this starch. We basically make it into a potato smoothie. From there we separate the starch from the skins, from there we wash it and then we dry the starch. The project was inspired by Board Bia's Origin Green Sustainability Programme, which looks at reducing waste in business. And at the plant it's only potatoes that aren't fit for retail, or the wonky ones, that are destined to become starch. So wonky potato, as you can see from this potato here I have in my hand, it has a not so pretty skin, it can have elements of mechanical damage, or just in general misshapen. Uh, nutritionally these potatoes are absolutely 100% but they're not accepted at a retail level. We wanted to be able to create a higher value for these. At the moment, these were going for a cattle feed, which was fine, but 
20 to 30 percent of everything we take in is deemed unfit for retail purpose. We wanted to reduce this waste. It seems potato starch isn't just a load of waffle and ticks all the right boxes from a nutritional perspective. Dr. Anne Nugent, Senior Lecturer, UCD Institute of Food and Health and Institute for Global Food Security in Queens. Here we have an example of a particular compound in potatoes which when you extract it out or pull it out has lots of health properties and that's called resistant starch. Um, it's relatively new that we, we've known about it only since the 1980s. From a health point of view, from a nutrition point of view, what we are learning more about is that it can help us in, in different ways. Um, one would be that uh, we know that uh, if we eat foods that contain resistant starch, we tend to release our energy from our foods a little bit more slowly, which is a good thing for us, particularly for people who live with diabetes. Um, and also what we know is that foods that have this uh, resistant starch, um, it acts as a type of dietary fibre, which most people will recognise it's been a good thing for us in terms of our gut health and, and bowel health in general. Also, potato farmers have plenty of skin in the game when it comes to the potential of starch. Thomas McKeown from Castletown, Navan, County Mead, uh, potato grower. Those knobbly potatoes, as we would call them, the knobs on them are, are, are the cracks, the growth cracks. Those potatoes now, instead of a grower, maybe trying to put them into a bag and sell them, for wear and have an inferior product. They have an an outlet for it here. We have a market for it here and they're going to get paid for it. We have uh, cracked a lot of cracked potatoes and stuff like that. And this now is an outlet for them potatoes, which would be kind of class two as such, especially now this year with with the COVID. There are certain potatoes that will not get to the market. They're going into this system. Hey, I'm Eleanor Mead. I'm business operations manager here at Mead Potato Company. We're producing tons and tons of starch every single day. Believe it or not, it's not just for the Irish market, but um, ironically, it's kind of a natural evolution for the company. 20 years ago, um, my dad was exporting potatoes for starch manufacturing in Europe. And now, instead of sending our potatoes away, we will be able to produce potato starch here in Ireland for the Irish market. But ironically, we hope to be able to export it to UK and European markets in the starch form, not potato form. And the appeal of the potato is only just getting going, according to R&D manager Kleena Costello. So we're the only um, food-grade starch for resale in Ireland and the UK. Us ourselves, we didn't realise the value of the starch until a couple of years ago. We're only learning the, the value of the potato now, and at the cutting edge of science here, there's so much more we can do with potatoes now, we realise. So this is just a start for us, we hope. Even wonky potatoes have a role to play. That was Cleana Costello from the Mead Potato Company, ending Angus Cox's report. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.